Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil & Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded a small consultancy, Energia Consulting, and became a podcast host for the Oil & Gas Global Network. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and take a look at the new merchandise that's available now. Maybe even pick up the Oil & Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. A link is in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Larry Lake. Thank you. Dr. Lake needs no introduction within oil and gas circles, but for the rest, Dr. Lake is a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, holding the Shahid and Sharon Ula Endowed Chair in the Hildebrand Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering. Dr. Lake has published in many areas, subsurface areas of oil and gas, including geologic carbon storage, enhanced oil recovery, integrated reservoir characterization, reservoir engineering, unconventional resources, reservoir simulation, and solution mining. He holds a BS in chemical engineering from Arizona State University and a PhD in chemical engineering from Rice University. So, Larry, thank you again for being part of our podcast today. Thank you. So, so you've had a long career in oil and gas. So, how did you get into oil and gas from chemical engineering? How did how did that work? You know, it's um, <clears throat> I hate to say it's serendipity, but oh, that's it, good. good. It was her. it was serendipity. <clears throat> I uh, went to uh, graduate school at Rice, more or less by serendipity, and that turned out okay. And. Then I, then I took a job with Shell, which uh, probably was the world's shortest interview trip, <laughs> a mile and a half from my apartment. Oh, well, that's worked out. That was serendipity. Really good. But I really thought I was joining the, the uh, downstream business. And <gasps> so I walked in the door and it took me about, I kept looking for distillation columns and right. things like that. And right, chemical engineering, that's yeah, exactly yeah, that's what, what you I do. that's what I thought I was going into. And, yeah. and uh, finally I realized that... Uh, that wasn't what this was. So this is all subsurface. So, yeah. uh, But it, as with so many things in my life, it was serendipity, but it turned out very well. Very good. Right. So what did you actually do for Shell when you first you know, got hired or whatever? <clears throat> well, we were working on a uh, process called surfactant flooding. I guess they called it chemical flooding, an mm-hmm. EOR process, mm-hmm. which uh, one of those processes that worked just very well in the laboratory still does. And they were trying to figure out how uh, to uh, make it work in the field. They had not much experience in the field, and the little bit they had was kind of iffy. So I was working on a numerical model. 
And then as that uh, broadened out to a bit, I moved over. I mean, that experience of the difference between the way the field performed and the lab performed right. made me think we were missing something big time, like mm-hmm. uh-huh, the geology. Oops. <laughs> Oops, yes. So what year are we talking about? Because, I mean, that was a lesson a lot of us had to learn. And and 73 to, uh, I, I guess it was me, just as I was leaving show, did I finally have the full import of what that, what that was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you would get 90% recovery in the lab, and you would get 10% in the field. Right, um, right. If, if you got 90% recovery, you could make a go of it yeah. in the field, but yeah. you didn't get it. Yeah, in fact, yeah. none of them have got yeah. to that, that well. So in the lab, was it core that you were... The lab was core. And so you can flood a core more efficiently because you can put more through it? or uh, Well, that's true, too. But the main reason is it's the core is specifically chosen so it's homogeneous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's very small, and so it's easy to do that, but uh, the fields are not homogeneous at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've gotten a little bit of technical stuff here yeah. for those of us who are not um, subject matter experts. Um, so homogeneous, you know, the torturous path of, that fluids have to go through. I don't think a lot of people understand that um, or have had exposure to that. And then the notion of chemical flooding, you know, surfactant flight, what what does that even mean for, for well, people who are outside? <clears throat> surfactant flooding basically is interjecting a solution, interjecting, introducing a solution uh, that uh, lowers interfacial tension and, and, and cleans out oil. If you like, it's like soap flooding. We are going to wash that oil right out of that rock. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah, okay. And then the heterogeneity, well, I think most people actually have, a, have seen it, maybe not realize they have, but if you've ever driven through a road cut on a road and you looked at the size of the cut, it's not the same thing everywhere. Oh, well, you see the rock? Yeah, you see the rocks. The rocks have got layers, yeah. they've got cracks in it, they've got, you know, folds and stuff like that. And we, uh, we were doing tests on little tiny pieces of that which uh, were not representative of all what the whole field would do. Right. So there's a more uniform piece of rock. Yes. So, yeah. of course, you did that by design for the research. We did that But by then design. the transferring that, those insights to yeah. the reality of it, it just it doesn't, it doesn't work that you way. You just can't do it directly. You had to do something else, and that's yeah. what I was involved in. Yeah, yeah. And then as I got toward the end of it, I came more, became more involved in the whole business of flow and heterogeneous media. And I think that's sort of where I end up when I came to the University of Texas. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, I retired from the Department of Energy, and one of the largest, one of the most important thrusts that I was involved in with the national laboratories, yeah. although it was private sector relationships, partnerships, um, but also including the national laboratories, well, this notion of looking at subsurface phenomena at the nanoscale. Yep. So what, what would, how would you look at that now from where you started? Share with uh, people who are both subject matter experts and non-subject matter experts, what that all kind of means and put it well, together. Well, but I'm going, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, obfuscate. You're the professor <laughs> here, so. <laughs> uh, rocks are heterogeneous on all scales, but that means that however big a piece of rock you choose to look at is heterogeneous. And when you look at it on a really small scale, you're sort of horrified by how heterogeneous it is. And you think, my God, how can I know anything about a reservoir that's, you know, several miles wide on a piece of rock that's a few centimeters wide? But the truth is, as you get bigger and bigger in scales, it becomes even more heterogeneous, and the nature of that heterogeneity actually changes. So that I'm kind of skeptical about the ability, well, I'm 
skeptical, very skeptical about the ability to take a measurement on a small scale and apply that without correction right. uh, to the large scale. Right. And that's what uh, what I've been going after. I I have I have a talk that I give on the scales about uh, about rocks, and I show a series. Of, this is actually a a book that came out 30 years ago called Powers of Ten. And it shows a series of photographs of somebody sitting on a blanket, and each photograph is tenfold closer in. Oh, yeah. And, it, you know, once you get to the third third close in, you can't even tell who, what was in the first one. And it works the same way. If you start off at the real small one, once you get about a factor of 100 higher in magnification, you can't tell what that rock was doing there. So uh, I think the prevailing feed, feeling is that what you do on the small scale doesn't really represent what's on the large scale, but it informs it. It informs it, it informs yeah. It. And I think that's what we um, we concluded, that you can't ignore mm-hmm. what happens at the nanoscale, especially with respect to geochemistry. Right. Which we, you know, when I started in the oil and gas business, even though we were doing EOR and, and uh, steam flooding and, you know, huff and puff cyclic stimulation with steam and mm-hmm. the like, um, none of that was, I mean, it was all on the macro scale. We, we drilled wells in a geometric pattern instead of following geologic trends. And we still like. do that, so, by the way. Oh, we still do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Oops. <Well. laughs> we, we, we have to have more respect for, uh, mm-hmm. for the geology and for geologists and for the way that the rock was laid down right. and came into being. Right. So, um, so these, so the notion of rocks and phenomenon and uh, upstream, you know, the premise of our uh, podcast is that um, not everyone is a subject matter expert in all aspects of upstream. That it's a it's a convoluted, complex, interdependent, collaborative environment, and that different subject matter experts bring something, you know, an understanding, a unique understanding. So, and then as we're moving into the um, uh, energy transition and uh, other forms of energy that involve the subsurface. So how do you define, quote, upstream, if you were just asked to, to do that, and then translate how that informs other uh, subsurface energy forms? Well, upstream was easy. It's the lease line. The lease line. <laughs> the lease line backwards. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So yeah, the lease line backwards through the wellheads, through the wells, and then into the reservoir. That's upstream. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, I'm uneasy with the phrase energy transition. I, I much prefer the term energy diversification. I like that energy diversification. Okay. Right. Right. And so uh, there are other forms of energy in this diversity that could benefit from what our experience has been in uh, in oil and gas. Most of them will. Yeah. Yeah, most of them will. So share something about that. For example, you know, geothermal. It's all about subsurface. Well, geothermal is a natural predecessor, predecessor, a natural follow-on for thermal from thermal oil recovery, which has been done around the world since the mid-1950s. Oh. And uh, you know, billions of barrels have been produced uh, from from heavy oil reservoirs with that technology. In fact, two billion barrels have been produced from one field in California alone with thermal oil recovery. Oh my God. In some places around the world, it would be uh, Western Venezuela, it would be the Central Basin Platform of California, it would be Northern Alberta. It's it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so it's morphed from standard flooding over to something called SAG-D. Right. 
and that basically will morph over into a geothermal. Right. So, so SAG D help people who are not uh, oil and gas people. Yeah, I really did best that one up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, okay. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> it's called the steam, steam assisted gravity drainage. Right. Uh, very interesting process. Uh, it's one when the uh, when the oil is just a little too heavy to do normal storm uh, steam processes. Too viscous. Too viscous. Yeah. And it it involves basically drilling horizontal wells. It uses a horizontal well technology. And the two wells, there are two wells, they're twin. There's a lower well and an upper well. They're about 10 meters apart. And you steam, I think the bottom one, the steam pumps through and it percolates up and it pushes the oil up through the, uh, up to the other one up at the top. And it comes back up at the surface. Uh, it's been very successful. Yeah. It's been very successful, but it has not been around from the very beginning. Yeah. yeah. I don't, you know, I don't see anything that, uh, Geothermal is is going to involve basically uh, uh, heated water. Uh, it's probably will involve injecting water to boil it, although that's not done very much in geothermal operations. So much of the, that understanding, if not the technology, will carry over directly into a geothermal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Enhanced geothermal systems, um, EGS, is yeah. the um, application of hydraulic fracturing to uh, harder rock deeper rock, um, and this uh, environment is similar to hydraulic fracturing, you know, in shale, Mm -hmm. uh, in that you, you know, break the rock basically with uh, water pressure, Mm -hmm. um, and injecting water uh, almost in a closed loop system Mm -hmm. where you have an injector and then a producer, Mm -hmm. and then at the surface the steam drives a turbine. Water, the steam cools to water, and then uh, it's re-injected and kind of doing That's that. That's right. Um, some of the challenges, though, of geothermal have to do with it being deeper and harder and hotter. And so the research questions relate to translating the, the drilling's um, the drilling experience in oil and gas to these harsher to this harsher environment successfully, say safely, economically, commercial, right? Yeah. And that's where the that's where the work is right now. So Yeah, the uh, the geothermal targets now are a lot deeper than the SAG D things that I mentioned before. And they're <clears throat> resting on the piggyback of the unconver- unconventional well experience, which I don't fully understand this, but they, they get wells down a lot faster than I ever thought possible. Geothermal wells? Yeah. Well, no, the uh, unconventional wells, which means that they'll get the geothermal wells down a lot faster, too. Ah, that's what uh, you're saying. There's okay. many flavors of this. I mean, there's some people that actually think you can, you can get by with one well and just go from one portion of the well to the other with geothermal. There's some other people that think you actually have to drill another well and go back up to the surface. Then there's another people that think you have to drill two wells and and a fracture between them. All of this stuff is still to be proved out, but the one thing that will always be a barrier is doing it fast enough because it doesn't pay at all if it goes real slow. Okay, the economics of drilling are yeah. still a limiting factor mm-hmm. for, for well, that. It's the economics of producing, actually. And pro- oh, producing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what you're saying. Getting the water, the steam, the heat back up to the surface. And fast enough. Fast enough. Right. Right. Both in terms of to, in order to generate the power or before the water cools, before the steam cools? Uh, or think, both? Or? I'm not sure about this, but I think if you had it at the steam at the surface, it would be better because you can run the turbines better with that. Steam turbines is long-standing technology there. So if it, 
if it cools to water, by the time it gets to the surface, that's probably not a good thing. Right, right. No, and it, and it doesn't cool to water, but you're right. The quality has gone down from when it started, mm-hmm. its yeah. journey. So how deep are um, geothermal wells compared to, like, deep conventional wells and then shale production? I mean, Gosh, just Todd, they're all wells. over the map. I mean, they are, yeah, okay. I, I work, it is I whatever the rock is. reservoirs that are 200 feet deep. Oh, yeah. All the way down to reservoirs that were like 15,000 feet deep, 15, which is all over the map. Yeah. But if I must be, if I must generalize, okay? Please, for people who don't yes. really know, just give them a sense of it. The SAGD technology probably is uh, no more than 1,000 feet deep. Maybe 800 is a good oh, good thing, two feet deep. It's kind of shallow. Kind of shallow, okay. yeah. The, uh, uh, the existing commercial geothermal operations, and there are some. There's a lot in the Southern California and a lot in uh, New Zealand are not so deep. I'm not sure exactly how deep, but I'm guessing around maybe 2,000 feet. The ones that are being eyed today are really deep, 8,000 feet oh. or so. Yeah. So they're getting the wells down quickly and being able to manipulate at that depth is going to be a big deal. Right, right. So that's the journey of the steam. That's the journey of the steam. the rock being right. cooler as it goes up, and right. so then that's the, that's the challenge there. Oh, that was good. That was a good mm-hmm. conversation. So... Um, so you've been in the oil business. What did we say? How long have you been in the oil business? Fifty years. Fifty years. Mm-hmm. What a number. What a number. So you've seen a lot of changes in the industry, but mostly in the technology. What are some of the changes? I know sometimes when I talk with people about I'm an oil and gas and petroleum engineer and this is what I've seen and this is what I know, they kind of think about we still have gushers and they just think it's a very, you know, uh, lumbering kind of uh Operation. They don't realize how technologically sophisticated the sector is nowadays. Um, can you maybe highlight some, maybe some milestones or some key changes, or just sort of a sense of the last 50 years of technology? That well, are it, some? It, it is kind of lumbering. You were right about that. Okay. Uh, um, as an example, the uh, the big find that I think Exxon made off the southern, the northern coast of uh, South America. It's still not online yet, but it was it was made seven years ago. You know, something yeah. like that. It just yeah. takes a long time to do Diana. those things. Yeah, right. And so the joke I tell in class is uh, uh, the first oil in, in the United States was in um, Drake's Folly. I believe it was 1851, one year before the start of the Civil War. And we're still producing... Uh, well, for example, Spindletop was sort of the representative, the big representative of, of the large-scale oil production was shut in about 2010. It was discovered in 1901. It was 100 years old. 100-year-old well. So, um, and the we, Spindletop is that famous picture of the oil Well, spindle, Spindletop, it is impossible to over, overstate how important Spindletop was. And I saw a cartoon just the other day about it. Uh, uh, Spindletop was the was the event that changed Moby Dick from a technical manual to a novel. Oh. Right? And I saw <laughs> that's a that's a good one. I love that. I, I saw. A, <laughs> it took uh, me a minute, but I yes, yeah. Yeah, I saw a cartoon the other day. It was an old cartoon about a uh, yeah. a whale's uh, whale's parties for whales, yeah. and they were celebrating the, the discovery of. Uh, a spindle top because nobody would be hurting them for fuel anymore. Yeah. yeah. So that's good. So I neglected to share with our listeners that we are 
live recording at the Society of Petroleum Engineers um, Annual Technology Conference and Exhibition. And we're in the exhibition hall, and so we, we do have this background, but I love it down here because this is where the technology is, this is where the deals are made, and this is how you get to uh, get to where we are moving forward in terms of technology. So, so, you, so continue with your technology stories. Well, let's see. I, I can't really say that I've been associated with successful te technologies. Oh, <laughs> early stage TRL. <laughs> yeah, something something like that. Uh, enhanced soil recovery technology has, uh, in some fashions of it, uh, polymer flooding, for example, has really taken off, and I only did a little bit of work on that, which is a good good a good thing to do. But uh, of course, thermal flooding, steam flooding, was well under its way uh, when I. Uh, I started at Shell. Shell was actually the inventor of that uh, technology. Oh, I didn't realize oh, yeah. that. Yeah, very That's much smart. so. And uh, <clears throat> then I came into the game after I left Shell, mo moving into the direction of reservoir characterization and CO2 injection. And that one's taken off quite a bit in the last few years. So yes. there's been some maturity there. Uh, it's been basically understanding the process, knowing what to expect from the process, and uh, most importantly, having a CO2 source, right. which we do have. Which we have now. We yeah. have now, but it, it took a long time. In fact, the, the pipeline was being putting in, put, putting in while I was at Shell. Yeah. They were just beginning to uh, inject CO2 into uh, uh, Wasson yeah. in West Texas. Yeah. So, yeah, we are lumbering. I know that. In fact, uh, Sometimes we run out, uh, we're not ahead of our technology, or we think we are, because yeah. so much happens so quickly in other, other branches, but it's just not us. We have great discoveries, great ideas, and great people, but getting it into practice is not nearly as fast as other technologies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and what about in the arena of uh, um, analytics? Uh, you know, we start with reservoir simulation, yep. and... Yeah. Uh, now we're even pushing on artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. you know, the, the big data analytics, machine learning, all of the above. That's pretty sophisticated in the oil and gas sector. I remember when I first got a uh, terminal mm -hmm. that allowed me to access a mainframe for doing calculations and, and the like. And, um, you know, we were blowing up storage uh, right away in mm -hmm. terms of... Um, space on the computer right. to hold all of that. And we've always been on that end, that pushing that envelope of the ability to do more and more because natural systems have so many variables and right. trying to characterize all of them. Yeah. And it's hard to find another industry that has that sort of analytical need and capability and and that piece of piece. Yeah, of I, I thought about that too. And I don't I don't usually put that at the for, forefront of, of a response to a question like that mm. is because a lot of other other industries are taking advantage of that sort of thing too. Right. And in ter in terms of machine learning or artificial intelligence, we're probably behind. Oh, we're, really? Yeah, we're probably behind. We still rely on algorithmic simulators. Yes. And okay. uh, a lot of uh, measured data interpretation, things like that. Uh, before we started uh, scaring ourselves about bitcoins, <laughs> I used to think that processing seismic images was the most uh, computer-intensive thing that there was. Right. But that's actually not quite true anymore, as my son tells me. Okay. Son. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's uh, it's tricky to catch up and to keep it, it up is. with that. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Still, I would not say that um, oil and gas is 
an unsophisticated it's, sector. It, I, I, I would agree with you. They are not. But remember, there's a whole range of producers. Remember, there's uh, producers, of course, like Exxon. And it, when you're talking about big oil, no, normally people think in terms of Exxon. They're not talking big oil. Big oil is a Ramco. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. And they think of Exxon and their shell, and they're very technologically sophisticated, but it starts falling off the table pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And there's companies that have maybe 10 wells. Right. Or something like that. I just can't afford much more than, sorry, one guy in the office and one person in the field, and that person is probably a contractor. Right. Right. So it's just uh, all over all over the the, uh, the range of needs and things right. like that. Right. Yeah. Now you know Exxon and Aramco and Shell they're going to contribute a lot to the supply of oil, but they're not going to contribute <clears throat> as much proportionally as to the to the well-being of the of the population. They pay salaries. Everybody pays salaries. So it's a good thing like that too. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I forget that people don't really, um, and this is a some this is something we haven't really talked about in terms of mm-hmm. um, ensuring that everyone who listens has an understanding. But um, when we talk about the oil and gas producer, um, it's not just like those big companies that have famous names that people know. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be. You know, Larry Lake, Elena Melker, oil company. Exactly. And we could have one, two, three, five wells, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and any number of uh, size of operations in between our little company, perhaps, and uh, and the super majors. and the Yeah. Inter- yeah. yeah. And um, there's a lot of co- oil companies. I, I have never even looked at it. Would you guess how many... How many producers would you guess? I mean, there's fewer now than there used to be, but what, what, would you guess that a number just the order of magnitude to give the people The last time a I sense? checked, there were over 10,000 in Texas. Ten, Just in Texas? Just in Texas. 10,000. So yeah. it's a really big family of producers oh, when yeah. you talk about 30-plus oil and yeah. gas-producing states. Right. So it's not just Exxon and right. Chevron. No, no. no they, they, they produce the lion's share of the oil. They produce okay. most of it. But uh, in in terms of the spectrum, they're way on the end of it. Uh, yeah, up to, yeah. And we would be on the other end. Our little company here. We would, yes. We have to think about that, Larry. Yeah. Have to try to do something like that. Oh yeah. Well, this is this is. Um, it's wonderful to be chatting with you. Um, there are so many people who have shared with me that they. Um, oh, the success in their career uh, based on what they learned in your classroom and uh, the, 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 you know, your style of teaching, your um, interest in students and helping, just helping them. And everybody loves you. All your students love you. And uh, I guess last night there was a lovely reception in your honor and uh, celebrating your 50 years. And what are you going to do now? Are you still going to stay with oil and gas? Well, probably. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'm too old to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> well, never say never. <laughs> never say that. Uh, actually, I really like what I do. And so I, uh, I, I went into phase retirement just because it was time, not because I wasn't happy with it. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like to stay involved in some way. Yeah. And I, I will be at the University of Texas for another three years at least. Okay. To All right. complete this. So. so people know where to find you. Yes. And we'll they will continue to know. Where yeah, you they find will. You. Oh, I think that, no, I think that that's really important. So, so what's your favorite, what are your favorite things to do with respect to oil and gas? Like what, what is it that you would not want to, you know, leave behind that? I think I like, and you know, I'm not different than most other people, uh, too. 
I like a feeling of accomplishment. Yes. Uh, I like it when I've discovered something or thought of something that is new to me. I like it when a graduate student does something or thought of something that's new to all of us. Had to do that just a couple months ago, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I like it when we graduate a particularly good PhD student or, or a particularly good uh, um, uh, undergraduate, and I really like it when they come back to me uh, four or five years afterwards and tell me how they've uh, progressed in their career. Yeah. yeah. So it's good. Yeah, that 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 is lovely. That is the yeah. the best legacy ever, right? Yeah, that's, it is. That's a lovely right. a lovely thing. But so, the, but one thing I, I oh, should yeah. say, I was walking with a uh, a friend of mine through uh, through campus uh, the other day, and she was a uh, a grade school teacher, and I ran into a. A, a former student. I said, "You're a former student," and I shook his hand. And she's walking. And we walked a few steps, and she says, "Well, at least you can recognize your students." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> she was That's she right. was a fourth grader. That's right. Children <laughs> grow, they change. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Hard to recognize that. You yeah. know that. That's lovely. So, so what did it, what do you think about um, future for oil and gas from a technology point of view? What might be some of the goals we still want to push on, or um, you know, trends that we want to, might want to continue or follow? Or what are your thoughts when you look at the future based on all your experience and, you know, wisdom from the past uh, that, that you would just share with us? Are no? you asking me to predict the future? No, I'm asking you to set a goal. Okay, here's what I think. Understand this is based on no, no study. Right, okay. It's based on listening to a lot of people. But 50 talk, years of experience. 50 years of okay. experience. And there's one piece of information that kind of sticks with me. If you uh, make a plot of the cumulative domestic problem, product for uh, every country, and then you plot that versus their oil consumption, it's not a great correlation, but it's not bad at all. So there's a, the, the more hydrocarbon you consume, more energy you consume, the more prosperous your country is. Yes. Okay? And as I say, I don't know of any government that actually says, elect me and I will make you less prosperous. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> they don't, do they? No, you don't elect those people. Yeah. Hopefully so, okay. you don't elect those people. So the green energy comes along, and I look at all these, this talking about the, uh, uh, the, the, the rich countries, uh, frankly, talking about it, and I look at the other end of the line is the people in Africa. Are we going to, and not just Africa, the poor countries? Right. Are we just going to deprive them of this ability to climb up the ladder? I don't see any solution to that. So what I think is going to happen is that we're going to pretty much be stable in oil and gas consumption, but the total energy package will increase so that as a percentage of the whole, we will not be as much as we were. Right. Always remember, most oil goes for transportation. As far as I know, we do not need a visa to travel to Louisiana. Right. <laughs> Maybe we should, but uh, we don't. So we can travel all over the United States, and it is a hallmark of a developed country that you can travel where you want to, right? right? And that's because of oil and gas. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, I have heard this uh, little saying that I like to repeat often, and that is, if you can 
read, thank a teacher. If you can read at night, thank an energy worker. That's good. <laughs> because that's, good. that's what allows uh, people to to, yeah. and, uh, to expand, to grow, to um, build themselves up and yeah. their their families, their their futures, and that's what everybody wants. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's a lovely thing. Yes, most of the world is uh, like seventy percent of the world has suffers energy poverty. It's pretty it's pretty bad actually. It is yeah. very bad. And and um, <clears throat> increasing your energy literacy is important so that you can understand these things mm-hmm. and how the work that you do as an energy professional makes a contribution to people you will never meet, possibly. Yeah. And and that's important to do. That's the highest form of giving. So, right. absolutely. And the fact that we um, have the most environmentally sustainable practices in the United States with respect to oil and gas. Um, we wouldn't want to continue pr- to import from countries that don't have that respect for the environment. Um, and so th- those are the kinds of things that, that, that make it complicated because yes. you don't always know. Um, but you should know. You should learn. You should know stuff. <laughs> Especially if you're going to vote. That's <laughs> so, true. So that's true. important. Well, Dr. Larry Lake, Professor Larry Lake, thank you so much for for being with us. Do you have any last things you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Well, I I, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic about the future of this uh, of, uh, uh, petroleum engineering, producing petroleum. In the first place, we are in the process of diversifying ourselves, right? Which is which is good. In the second place, the the diversifications are going to use many of the skills that, that were needed in producing petroleum. And in the third place, we're not going to die. You know, we're it, all you have to do is stand over by the University of Texas booth here and watch all the students coming by and asking about graduate school. Very few of them are from the U.S. Right. So they still value what we do here. Absolutely. So absolutely. it's a good thing. Not being all that, I mean, some countries not being all that far away from that energy poverty. That's right. right? So That's right. It's, it's something that has worked for their families, perhaps. Right. Um, right. And, and, and it's important, right? Everybody wants a chance to, you know, right. to move up. And right. that's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Right. Well, Dr. Lake, thank you again so much for being here with us today. You're quite welcome. Oh. It was my pleasure. Thank you, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.